Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 33, Unwind Part 2. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. Being told to just relax when you're steaming is like pouring gasoline on a fire. How do you avoid the same pitfall when trying to relax when you're too agitated to fall asleep? After a little rain break last week to help us navigate the return to daylight savings, I want to return to this idea of unwinding. In this week's episode, I'll be reviewing a few more methods to unwind at the end of the day to assist in the transition from the busy of the day to the quiet calm of sleep. The physical environment plays a large role in your ability to unwind on the pathway to slumberland. It is hard to fall asleep in a nightclub or a rock concert. Loud noises, flashing lights, lots of movement, these factors are stimulating, no matter how tired you actually are. If you need a refresher, go back and listen to episode 3 on the environmental factors that are most supportive of a good night's rest. If we consider those factors as the black of sleep, and your daytime environment as the white of wake, then the environment conducive towards transitioning to the calm of sleep would naturally be a gray somewhere between these two environments. So for instance, if environmental sound levels under 40 decibels are supportive of sleep, in midday you are swimming in 55 to 70 decibels of sound, then as you are preparing to transition to sleep, aiming for a sound level between 40 and 50 decibels is reasonable. That's about the volume of a calm conversation between two people not so far apart that they are shouting, or the normal noise level of the outside of a calm neighborhood with occasional voices, animal sounds, road traffic, but by and large, seems relatively quiet. If the optimal sleeping temperature is about 65 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit, and your home is usually a comfortable 72 to 75 during the day, consider adjusting the thermostat down to 70 after dinner to start that cooling process. Several smart home thermostats may do this for you if you select temperature targets for various times of the day. Light is probably the biggest problem area. Go back and listen to episode 4. It is hard to overstate what a profound impact evening light can have on your sleep, including the ability to fall asleep, stay asleep, wake up on time, quality of sleep objectively and subjectively, and next day sense of being rested and awake. Light is the enemy of sleep. But light is also wake's BFF. The problem is not the substance of light itself, but the timing of that exposure. Because the effects of light don't suddenly disappear the moment you flick the switch or turn off the screen. These light effects can last for hours. There are specialized cells in the back of the eye called the retina, some of the population of these retinal ganglionic cells whose job it is to inform the brain of whether or not and when the lights were turned on. 
Some of these receptors stop sending signals to the brain as soon as the lights are turned off, some four minutes longer. Think of the bleaching effect you might experience after suddenly seeing a bright object, when you basically hallucinate the outline of the sun or lamp or headlights, whether your eyes are closed or open. And then there are receptors which continue to send signals for much longer periods of time despite exposure to light for as little as 30 seconds and then ceasing. Then these signals, once reaching the brain, can continue to influence brain-level arousal even after the retina stops sending them. From timing of melatonin release to the amount and distribution of different sleep stages, all from when the eyes were last passively exposed to ambient light, with more proximal, like in your hand, and blue-white shifted light, like from LED screens, more potently affecting sleep than farther away light sources or red or amber shifted light. So if you are exposed to thousands of lux of light during the day in single-digit levels overnight, starlight from windows or street-level light filtering in through the hallways, etc., then as you are trying to unwind, the light level of your environment should also reflect this transition zone of intermediate light levels. And because the levels of light are so much more vastly different between day and night than the difference between the sound levels or the temperature, the slope of change and the number of different levels should also reflect this. So for instance, if your target bedtime is 10 p.m. and sunset is around 6.30 p.m., then when your environment has gradually dimming light levels from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. to 9 p.m., and then once you reach 10 p.m., your body is much better prepared, passively made ready for sleep simply by adjusting the light levels. So as the night stretches on, you can adjust overhead lighting, or lamps, or using a dimmer function if available, or just progressively limiting the number of lights turned on in any given space so that the overall light levels are stepwise or progressively diminishing. Secondly, in addition to ambient room light levels, it is of utmost importance to manage your screen use. If you're watching TV in bed, you have no excuse for why you're tired or having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep or not getting the quality of sleep you desire. The answer is streaming right at your sheets and pillows every night. And as explored heavily both in episodes 4 and episode 12, Handheld light sources are even worse than television screens. If you have any exposure to screens within an hour of trying to get to sleep, there are serious consequences. Look no further than this single behavior as the cause of your suffering. General recommendations call for a two-hour respite from screens prior to intended sleep. That can be difficult for a lot of people. And even if not as helpful, a one-hour screen curfew is reasonable and far easier to achieve. Problems result not just from the spectra of light, why the night mode orange tinted filters don't do squat, but the intensity, the distance from the eyes, and the type of content being viewed. The more engaging, whether because it is actually interesting and thought-provoking, or whether because you're engaging in addictive behavior like social media scrolling to be explored on its own in an upcoming episode, the more engaged you are with the content, the more difficulty you will have in achieving acceptable sleep if there is not an adequate buffer between when that activity ceases for the night and when you try to get between the sheets. So your environment plays a massive role in your ability to unwind. It's hard to ramp down arousal levels if you're on a battlefield. So does your physical environment in the couple hours approaching bedtime better resemble a battlefield or a sanctuary? The activities you engage in during this transition period make a huge difference as well. This is a great opportunity to engage in purposefully relaxing activities. Maybe it's working on a naturally calm and relaxing hobby. Whether it's puzzles, building models, sketching, painting, knitting, the possibilities here are endless. Maybe it's something you wish you could do more of. Maybe it's starting something new. But a hobby-level interest means that you're not just filling in time or feel like you're wasting time, 
but rather experience the intrinsic reward of doing something you like, that you enjoy. There's a special satisfaction in that. So then, rather than feeling deprived because that idiot doctor on the dumb podcast told me to put down my phone, instead you feel fulfilled because you're doing something positive, something you like and enjoy for its own rewards. Other physical activities to consider doing may be themselves also intrinsically rewarding. This is a great time to institute a little bit of stretching. We could all benefit from being a little bit more flexible, and a nightly ritual of a little stretching can go a long way in helping you become more limber. This is also a great time for yoga. There are lots of different styles of yoga and endless programs out there, some targeting stretching and flexibility, some targeting tonic strength, some simple breath work, and some done fully laying down that might help with sleep. Another fan favorite is massage. If you are lucky enough to have a partner or another willing party, both giving and receiving massage can do wonders. Deep tissue work and pressure can help stimulate the rest and digest function. It can ease pain and discomfort, not just from cramping prone areas. It can help with low back pain and shoulder pains. And there are few more effective ways to gain the favor of another than by rubbing feet. Even within the first seconds of massage, you can feel the stress and tension of the day just melt away. Spending just five minutes each on massage will go a long way in helping you both unwind in that transition towards sleep. We've discussed in several contexts ways to help unwind tension from cognitive arousal. Again, it's helpful to focus on the idea of adding or doing something positive and desirable rather than feeling deprived of something whose timing may be counterproductive for your sleep and overall well-being. So rather than feeling like, that dumb doctor doesn't want me on TikTok while I'm in bed, think of it as giving yourself the opportunity to engage in something you may not otherwise do at all, at any time of day. This may include reading. Whether getting through that ever-growing stack of catalogs, is it too late to order the fall 2020 season specials? Or getting your money's worth from that subscription to print magazine, newspaper, or newsletter. It's a great time to keep up with this month's book club selection. Or maybe you make a commitment to read a book a week or read the Bible in a year. Reading slows down our thinking. It engages our memory, our imagination, our orientation and navigation, focuses our attention as we try to make sense in our heads about the environment we're learning about only through words. Reading is a great way to unwind in that transition towards sleep. We spent some time in episode 31 discussing some writing options. This can be a great complement to what you're reading, such as notes to yourself, your own commentary on the material, or if you're studying for an upcoming test, to help solidify your knowledge. Mindfulness practices are one of the most effective ways to unwind. They can be employed in the moment at any time, just during particular situations, such as mindful eating or mindful walking, and these may be considered informal mindfulness. This can take the form of something like this. While in a conversation with a spouse or child or friend, if you find yourself thinking about how soon till you need to advance the laundry, or running through all the crap you have to do the next day, or wondering how much fatter he's going to get before you put your foot down about the late-night ice cream. Whether you find yourself anywhere but in the moment of one-on-one exchange with this other person, bring yourself back. You can just leave it at that. From mind-wandering to the, oh, my mind was just wandering and I wasn't paying attention. Or you can take it a step further. Not just listening to the words from their mouth, but recognizing that what you're interpreting may not be what they actually said. Or as Brene Brown says, the story I'm telling myself is... Part of active listening is being mindful of what someone else is saying, repeating back to them what you think they are saying, if you heard them correctly. There are other great informal, off-the-cushion mindfulness opportunities like eating and walking that we'll explore deeper in another episode. 
Then there are formal mindfulness practices. In the biz, they call this time on the cushion, meaning that it is a period of dedicated time, whether 5 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour or whatever, to generally sit, whether on a meditation cushion or just in a comfy chair or couch, to engage in mindful practice, whether open awareness practices or focused attention on a specific object, as we discussed in episode 24. A lot of what we want to accomplish in this unwinding period between the hectic day and the quiet calm of sleep is balance. Specifically, to balance our autonomic nervous system. We divide the core functions of the nervous system into two main categories. There's the somatic nervous system, which is essentially sensation from the body to the brain, and motor commands from the brain sent to the muscles. And the other main category is the autonomic nervous system, which is basically the automatic part of the nervous system how the body maintains things like heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, digestion, etc. The autonomic nervous system is itself divided into two systems, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. The sympathetic nervous system is widely known as the fight-or-flight system, and the parasympathetic system is known as the rest-and-digest system. In healthy individuals, we see these two, sympathetic and parasympathetic, functioning in harmonious balance. Both are literally vital to basic biological functioning. However, we are too often finding ourselves out of balance with the sympathetic nervous system over-engaged while underutilizing the parasympathetic system. So a lot of what we do during this unwinding period is to emphasize the rest and digest and ease off that fight or flight. Too often, stress is physically mediated by the foot on the gas pedal of the sympathetic, and sleep loss, loss of quality or quantity, certainly contributes to this imbalance as well. Apart from trying to lower sympathetic activity, we can also do more to increase parasympathetic activity. One very simple method is deep belly breathing. Now, we can get easily confused here when it comes to breath work. For example, in formal meditation, we are asked not to breathe in any certain way, but just to pay attention to what it feels like, to the experience of breathing as the object to focus on. But in the same meditations, we are often asked at the beginning to take deep belly breaths to help settle in. So, which is it? Force your way to breathe a certain way? or just breathe in any which way? The unsatisfying answer is both. The involvement of the breath in most meditation practices is passive. The breath is there, so might as well use it as an anchor to appreciate the act of breathing and what it feels like to breathe, not to force it one way or another. But on the way to that focus, it helps to settle in and unwind first, and that's where the forced, particular kind of purposeful breathing comes into play. When we take deep breaths, especially belly breathing, the stretch of the tissue of the lungs stimulates the parasympathetic system. The more you take deep belly breaths, the greater the breaks are applied to fight or flight, and the more emphasized the rest and digest system becomes. The easiest way to distinguish what it feels like to belly breathe is to lay down on your back. Put your hand on your belly and breathe normally. How much does your hand bob up and down? Now take a deep breath through the nose. How much does the hand move up and down now? Now take a deep breath in through the nose, but try to fill your belly, or even try to fill your feet with that air. Intentionally try not to get air up around your chest and shoulders, but breathe like you're trying to breathe with your lower half. Now how much do you see your belly move? You can even place one hand on your chest and one on your belly. Deep belly breathing makes your belly hand move much more than that chest hand. Experience what that feels like, the sensation in your whole body, when you deep belly breathe. Now stand up or sit up and try again. Try to replicate that deep belly breathing feeling. You can still place your hand on your belly, 
but it is not as easy to appreciate the movement as when you're on your back. Slow, deep breaths in and out of your belly will help reinforce your parasympathetic system. When somebody cuts you off in traffic, or your kid says something disrespectful, or customer calls and makes flying accusations that are totally unfounded, if you take two, three, four deep belly breaths, you'll find yourself more physically calm, which allows you to respond more effectively rather than react unskillfully. Another method to actively engage the parasympathetic system is with intentionally slowing down your breathing. An easy way to accomplish this is with pursed lip breathing. The goal is to have your exhale last about twice as long as your inhale. So for instance, if you inhale over three seconds, you would try to exhale over six seconds. It is difficult to just breathe slower, so adding some air breaks by changing your mouth shape gets the job done. With your lips pursed like you're whistling, there's much less room for air to explode out from, so it takes longer to push the breath through. That way, achieving an exhale length of 6, 8, 10 seconds is much easier to accomplish. Slowing down your exhale also helps to slow down your heart rate as well. There's a natural variation in heart rate. It increases a bit during inhalation and decreases a bit during exhalation. This heart rate variability is a sign of good cardiovascular health. The more your heart rate speeds up and slows down, the healthier it tends to be. And taking your foot off the gas pedal of sympathetic activity and inducing the parasympathetic response by emphasizing slow exhalation pushes the needle in that direction. Pursing your lips lets less air out at a time, making exhalation longer, increasing parasympathetic tone, and slowing heart rate. Not to mention, helping ease the overall tension in the body, a great way to physically unwind. There's another great tactic called progressive muscle relaxation, which we'll explore in an upcoming episode. But to summarize, it is unpleasant to try crashing into sleep after feeling wired awake. A transition is in order. And there are lots of great ways to make that transition as soon as possible. Many of these strategies are great habits to have in general, and some can be implemented on an as-needed basis. A couple weeks ago, we talked about gradually decreasing physical exertion. We discussed various writing exercises, including gratitude, listing your accomplishments from the day, and a simple thought analysis to challenge some potentially unhelpful automatic thoughts. Today, we discuss making the environment conducive to slowing down, relaxing, and decreasing stimulation. Considering the optimal environment for sleep, cool, dark, and quiet, what is an intermediary state of temperature, light, and noise between your environment midday and midnight? Today, we reviewed some less physically arousing passive activities to engage in, including taking advantage of the time for hobbies. Stretching and partner massage can also feel great as well as relax. Don't forget to take turns. Reading, writing, and mindfulness practices, formal or informal, are also great ways to transition. Stimulating your parasympathetic rest and digest system also greatly helps to unwind. Deep belly breathing and a 1 to 2 ratio of inhale to exhale pursed lip breathing go a long way to apply those parasympathetic breaks to your stress response. Got a little handout for you, so if you head over to wellrestedmd.com day, you can get a free cheat sheet to a day in the life of the well-rested, including some specific best practices to get that good snooze. That's wellrestedmd.com day. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes, leave us a review, and head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information. Thanks for listening.